Okay. So uh, let's just uh, go ahead and uh, start. I, I am. I changed the way we're going to do things. I was initially going to finish off how far is too far, and then just go into this topic, Christian ethics, and uh, the question of homosexuality. But I just really felt like we needed to really be able to get through this whole thing. So I skipped out on finishing. Excuse me, how far is too far, and just jump straight, straight into this one. We can talk about whether we want to go back and finish that next week or what we want to do. We'll talk about that here in a little while, okay? So, uh, without further ado, we'll just go ahead and jump into the topic, Christian ethics and the question of homosexuality. A little background, what we've covered so far is we recognized that fundamentally we're male and female, and we've realized also that sexuality is uh, the drive to enter bonded community. Remember in the very beginning we were talking about the, the reason, what sexuality really is, and it's not... You know, having sex, it's actually a part of who we are and uh, what we're made to be, male and female, made in the image of God, and the desire bonded community is a big part of that. Sexuality has been blessed. God blessed it in Genesis as we look at that. And one aspect of sexuality that we know is that we share in procreation. We become a part of those that create as God himself is a creator. Uh, and participate in procreation as male and female in marriage. Then we looked at the fall, right? We looked at the fall and and where that took everything and how everything changed so much and the struggle for identity begins to become an issue with us and the relating that we deal with with one another uh, is skewed and relationships between male and female become, um, um, what's the word called, Uh, there's, an issue, there's, there's issues, there's a, um, a conflict is what I'm trying to get at between male and female and the curses that we see that follow uh, in choosing our own way in the fall. And then we get into the difficult questions that we ask of just the, the deviant nature that we fall into sometimes trying to decide to how far is too far really. And well, can I really go ahead and do this anyway? I feel this way and we're, we're falling. You know, and we, we're going by our feelings and not by the initial way God intended. We can get ourselves in all kinds of messes. So we focused on these questions and these areas. And now we're getting into probably what would be considered Um, uh, in our discussion as probably the most extreme discussion that we would have in the area of our struggle, at least in our minds. And I want to take that and look at it a little bit differently because I don't think it's any more extreme than any other struggle. But nonetheless, it is a struggle that needs to be talked about and addressed and what what do we do and how do we deal with it. So I hope that's what we'll do, we'll we'll get through today. So today we're going to cover the question of the Bible and homosexuality. How do we make witness to Christ and the world that allows us to keep integrity as God's people in this particular area? Uh, it's, it's a hot topic. It's a scary topic to talk about. Uh, sometimes we just might as well, we, we just don't want to say anything. And I think we're, we'll, we'll, discuss, we'll get to why maybe this particularly happens. We do understand this much. I do know this. The Bible does directly address the topic. Directly addresses the topic. It's important to note that the Bible addresses many topics, too, that show how we responded in our brokenness to find what we need in our own way. And the point being, uh, homosexuality is just one of many broken areas of brokenness in people's lives. Some people go that direction to fill the voids or to find their own way. 
You can't isolate homosexuality from the issue of human sexuality. And human sexuality, again, is that desire for bonded community. It's, this, it's, it's someone trying to find that, but in a way different than what God would intend. And I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. but <laughs> It doesn't stand alone. It is one way people struggle sexually. I hope I've made my point there. <laughs> one of many ways. It's uh, not more, there's no more difficult place for us to deal with this conversation than in our present environment. The present environment that we live in, it's very difficult to voice our feelings or our concerns in this area, especially uh, as Christians. And, uh, you know, we live in a culture that's saturate, saturated with the idea of tolerance. Let's talk about and take apart that word tolerance. What does it mean? What do you think it means? What do other people think it means? Do you believe that oftentimes when you say the word tolerance, the person that you're talking to is agreeing with what you mean by what you think tolerance means? For instance, if I say the word tolerance, does everyone agree agree on what it means? No, they don't. And that's the problem with this current culture. Uh, now, we know there's a definition of tolerance in the, in the dictionary. I can open it up. I can show it to you. You know what it says. But tolerance in this day and age is considered acceptance. If you're tolerant, then you accept me. You accept what I believe. You accept everything that I am as right and valid. So, this is actually the very opposite of what tolerance would truly be. <laughs> if you're tolerant, then you're on my side. That's really what this is what really where it's going. And that's a dangerous, tough place for us because we're saturated in this day and age with an unbiblical idea of tolerance and we have to live in the midst of that. So so how is it that we can avoid being called a redneck right wing bigot? How how do we how do we avoid this concept of, uh, you know, you're just, uh, you know, one of those right-wing folks. You know, you're, you're not uh, educated and, you know, you're, you're just, uh, you're backwoods in the way you see things. You're not progressive like, like we, we are. Uh, when you deal with some, some people, when you're talking about difficult topics today, how do we avoid it? I don't know that we can, honestly. We could try our best by, by different ways that we approach to approach to, uh, talking to people, but someone is going to have their decision the way they want to have their decision. I think the main way you win a person over is through your life. Your words have to be spoken, but your life will speak louder than that. And I think that when you say words that maybe people don't want to listen to, and then you in turn also in love continue to support and encourage a person, then all of a sudden you might have win that person over, even though initially you might become their enemy. Um, so we're in this saturated culture and there's this word called homophobia. Now homophobia is a, is a bad word initially. We understand it's the irrational fear and hostility heterosexual people sometimes feel towards a person who is homosexual. Now we understand this is well documented. Homophobia does exist. In this negative way, it it has created bad relationships 
even with, with the church and with uh, people that struggle in this area today because of the way that people, some people in the church have reacted. So homophobia does exist. But the problem today for you and I is if you disagree with the homosexual agenda, you are homophobic now. It's, a, it's an intimidation tactic. It's to push a person into silence. Well, I don't want to say anything because then I'm going to be considered homophobic. Well, you know, you know, you know you're really not. But for someone to say that is a reaction uh, to the pain they don't want to face your truth that you're sharing. Even if your truth is, is given in, in a loving way. Though understand that God can create divine appointments where you can really share with somebody and encourage them. Uh, and they're ready to hear because they've been to the place where at the end of the, they're at the end of their rope and they're really completely sexually broken and need help. So what I'm trying to say here is you can legitimately be concerned and you can care deeply. But when you voice disagreement, you're now declared an enemy. Even then, still stand for truth. Stand for truth. Stand for truth in love, as we're told. We don't want to be seen as stupid and irrational and uncaring, and that's why oftentimes we don't stand for truth. We don't know what to do. What do I do? I'll just not say anything. We must not be intimidated into keeping from sharing the truth about homosexuality as Jesus sees it. Now this is about Christ and what Christ sees and Christ wanting to bring freedom to the captive, people that are in captive to sin. And again, I've talked already about how there are many types of captivating sins. And today, one that we're, that we're talking about is homosexuality. Now, my experience, just so you know, so you can understand that I am not homophobic, is... I was, I was uh, uh, in college, was a choral, uh, in the choral area. I was in the voice area. I was in the drama area. Uh, I was completely in the fine arts. That's, that's how I, you know, what, what my degree was in college. I was actually an opera guy. And so throughout that experience, I encountered many homosexual men, many gay men. I was also hit on multiple times by gay men, and never did I bash them, never did I crush their, 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 you know, their psyche in any given way, but I tried to do the best I could to show them Christ's love even in the midst of their struggle that they faced. I've come alongside of people who, who have come out of the closet, so to speak. This is a, a terminology that's used in the, in the gay community, in the homosexual community. I've come alongside of them and I've held close to them while I've watched everyone else reject them. And I have seen them come to me themselves and say, thank you for not leaving me alone. As much as it hurts my heart to see what they've gone through and what they've chosen, um, I've stuck with them. And uh, I hope that in some way, that later on down the road, uh, some of those guys have been able been able to see Christ's love and have perhaps found that there is a way out and God can help them through. I've struggled with the temptations myself and God has given me the strength to deal with them. 
like I said. Uh, in, in, in extreme ways that I don't have to get into detail, but nonetheless, I have definitely had people hit on me uh, in hotel rooms and various things of that nature, uh, very awkward and odd situations in which if I wanted to, I could have just given in and I could have become uh, decided to, be, to, to become gay and live in that lifestyle myself. My background shows that I could have the excuses and the reasons to do it too, uh, but God uh, uh, has given me the strength and the help to walk out what he would consider the right way um, to live according to his word and has continued to work in my life in such a way where that isn't really a struggle anymore. And so this is my story. As Christians, we must agree and work to line every area of our life with God's word. The beauty of God's word is that it proves itself. We're not given a prohibition in the word of God without knowing why it is there. So it's not a don't do this because I don't want you to have fun. Don't do this because I said so. <laughs> like mom and dad say sometimes. <laughs> it's don't do this because I know where it's going to take you. <clears throat> don't do this because I know what it's going to do to you. I know what it's going to do to our relationship. And I know what it's going to do to your life eternally. These are the reasons why God says don't do things. The homosexual lifestyle must be addressed and questioned because we have a pastoral and prophetic obligation to do that. To address the challenges and where it takes people. <clears throat> it's important, though, in doing this, we understand that the Bible is clear that we must never equate the sin with the struggler. God hates the sin. It's clear in Scripture. However, he also hates other sin. In fact, he hates all sin. <laughs> Let's get it clear here. Judgmental picket lines and harsh words and crass words against homosexuals is dead wrong. It will do nothing to change the heart of a struggler. It will only lead them further away and give them more reason never to pursue God. Because if Christians are like this, then God must be like this. I, I really wish the church didn't respond to the struggles the way that um, they do sometimes. Flippant ways, making homosexuals, homosexual strugglers feel like they have to be silent. They can't speak. Think about if you were a person that was struggling with that identity and you were raised in the church and you were hearing your Sunday school teachers say derogatory comments about gay people or judgmental harsh remarks and here you are raised growing up in the church struggling with it in your own life. How would you deal with that? Many people who deal with this, even trying their best to try to live rightly, they leave the church because they can't handle the condemnation that they're feeling from others. They don't feel like there's a safe place for them where someone can help them and encourage them and they can actually share their struggle and be accepted and helped through in a godly way, in a way of love. 
There's this concept in the church that tells people who struggle with homosexual that it's the unpardonable sin. God could never forgive me because I have done this thing. It's sad that the church in many ways has led people to this place. The homosexual struggle in particular. Homosexuality first and foremost is a response to sexual brokenness. It's often due to events in a person's past. Recognize that this could have been a terrible situation that they faced. Mostly, most often, sexual abuse by a parent, by a family member, or a trusted friend or person in the family has opened the door to a brokenness in their lives that's caused a lot of confusion. It's not always, but most often this tends to be the case. So, we might ask questions like, well, what is it? What is homosexuality? And how, you know, and this, this understanding of, of that in a person, like how they even think this way, what, what's it like? I can't understand, like, what are the challenges? These might be questions you're asking. There's all kinds of questions that you could ask. So where do we begin in the midst of this? We could go from all kinds of angles when we talk about this. There's the sociological challenges. Adoption and gay marriage. How do you deal with that? There's socio-political challenges. Voting and gay rights. There's medical challenges. Because in the homosexual community, the gay community, it's free-willing. Promiscuity is rampant. It's part of the nature of the lifestyle, the sexual brokenness. There's a high rate of STDs, and in extreme ways, AIDS is a big problem among men in the gay community. Do we talk about that? Psychological, the psychological implications. Do we talk about that? How the American Psychiatric Institution Association up, up all the way through the 20th century, halfway through the 20th century, listed it as a deviant characteristic until recently agendas have led it to become rele released off of that list and made to seem as if it's something normal and natural. Are we doing people a service to do something like that? But then there's the theological perspective. What do the scriptures tell us? This is what I want us to talk about. What do the scriptures tell us? What can we learn about that? It's important to know that when I talk about homosexuality, I am not speaking of a person who is dealing with the thoughts, a person who is struggling in that situ in their lives with the identity place of it. What do I deal with? How do I deal with these thoughts? How do I deal with this attraction? All of these different things. It's about the acting out and the lifestyle that is being referred to in these texts. Okay, Living and giving in to the lifestyle completely. And condoning the lifestyle. Recognize this, though. This is a tough topic for me to address. I'm sure you could tell already from the very beginning. A little, a little emotional there. But um, recognize that this is not the best way to address it, a lecture format. 
Okay? Because a lecture format is about hard facts. You do the best you can to try to, to connect and, you know, and, and, and empathize and, and, and help uh, relate, relate. But hard facts aren't always feely. <laughs> they are what they are. And so that's what we're going to be doing. And so understand that. There, we can, you can ask some questions. We can get into more discussion related to some of the, de- some of the other detail. But we're going to talk about hard facts right now. Again, I want to preface properly here. There is a danger that we have in talking about them. Putting them in a whole other category. Again, it's that concept of ostracizing uh, a struggler. All people struggle. This is one of many struggles. So we don't want to put a different category on a person who struggles in in this area, as as, uh, can oftentimes happen. So what's the proper posture? We're the same broken people. We're just broken in different places. We all need rescuing. We need to come to some common ground. Uh, I'm going to lay down some underlying assumptions for the discussion that we should all be on the same page with, uh, regardless of who it would be. One is we're all human beings made in the image of God. We recognize that scripturally, Genesis 1 through 3. We've talked about this. We're all human beings made in the image of God, male and female made he them. Second, we are all embodied sexual beings. In other words, everyone deals and wrestles with their sexuality in some way. The third thing is we are all sensual beings in that we feel. And and some of the things that we struggle with are deep-seated feelings that run very, very deep. To talk about sexuality is to touch a nerve that arrives at the very center part of our personhood. Fourth, we are all distorted beings in our actions. In other words, none of us are what God desires us completely to be or hopes for us completely to be as we know in scripture for now we see through a glass darkly but then we shall know him we shall see him face to face for we will know him even as we are fully known we're not there yet we haven't seen him face to face but we're working there so none of us who are heterosexual are superior or less of a sinner than one who struggles with homosexuality All sexual sin is defacing of God's image. All sexual sin is defacing of God's image. There are many ways we can sin sexually, is what I'm trying to say. There's many ways we can sin sexually. But we are called, the last one, we are called to be a light of hope and healing. That's what Christians are called to do and to be. So the first thing we should do in that is tell the truth in the spirit of deep love. Because truth without love, yes, it's truth, but it isn't light.
We're called to be lights in the darkness, not just truth tellers. The light is something people gravitate towards. So we can tell the truth in a way that people gravitate towards that truth. And not because it's been skewed in any way to make it candy-coated, but because truth is indeed hope. The second thing about being a light of hope and healing is that we live the truth with each other. Again, I said it. How do we most, most often transform the world? By living out the truth in community. Because in community we find God's love and truth demonstrated. When you hear a person say that they are homosexual or that they're gay or a lesbian, note that what they're doing is they are making themselves synonymous with the struggle itself. As in, I am the struggle. As if it's a badge of pride. But what I want us to understand is the Bible is clear to condemn homosexual acts, but it shows compassion to those whose life has been broken in their sexual orientation. So really the truth is a person who says, I am the struggle, is just misled. Indeed, they are not the struggle. You're a homosexual struggler. You're not a homosexual. God didn't make you that way. That's a whole that's a question of uh, we can we can talk about too. So if questions are coming up as I'm talking, write them on the side too. That'd be good and then we could just address those. All right. Where am I at? You guys have broken in their sexual orientation already in there. The part where it says the Bible is clear to condemn homosexual acts but it shows compassion to those whose life has been broken in their sexual orientation. Okay. So Romans 12:1 what are we to be as believers? Romans 12.1 tells us this. We're called to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice unto God. We are not to conform to the pattern of this world, but we're to live transformed lives. Recognizing that the transformation comes from God's power, and therein that's where the hope is. Be transformed by God's power. He has the ability to take and change all of the things you feel you could not possibly change in yourself. Verse 2 of Romans 12.1 tells us that we are to respond by this transformation by living a sacrificial love to show the world what God has done in us. And that is the witness that we should have to the world in every area of our life when God changes us. The same in the area of finding opportunities and divine appointments with one who struggles with homosexuality. So now, what does the scripture and homosexuality say? What does scripture say about homosexuality? We've covered uh, texts that are a catch-all already. Pornea, remember? I said all these words, pornea, it's a catch-all for all sexual immorality. But God goes even deeper and gives us a primary text, different primary texts that refer specifically to homosexual struggle. and homosexual activity. The first one is Genesis 19, 4 through 11. Before I read it, I'll give you the context. Angels came to Abraham, 
told Abraham that he was going to have a child. He laughed, said, my wife's too far along. She's old. We're old as dirt. There's no way we can have kids. Ah, uh, no, you can. In their laughter, they named their son Isaac. Isaac means son of my laughter. And so then later on, when she has Isaac, the, the angel comes back, sees. Yeah, see, I told you so. <laughs> you just had Isaac. He's healthy. Bless the kid. And then when they're there, they talk about how they're going to uh, destroy a Sodom and Gomorrah, a city, a city that is corrupt in a big way. And so the angels go into uh, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah to talk to Lot because Abraham has pled with God, has pled with God, pleads with God, and he says, Lord, don't destroy the city. You know, there's this many righteous, if there's this many righteous, if there's that many righteous. And then God says, I, if you can just find one, that's cool. Just one. I will spare that man and uh, I'll still destroy the city. So the angels go into see Lot. Whoa, the angels are in for a treat. Let's see what happens. This is in Genesis 19, 4 through 11. This is what I'm going to read. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? That's the men who came in the form of the angels who came in the form of men. Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. And they said, This fellow came here as an alien, and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out, pulled Lot back into the house, and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old with blindness, so that they could not find the door. And then following that, they said, get your family together, get them out of here because the pronunciation of judgment is, is now is, and, I'm going to do, and God's going to destroy this city tonight. And so that's pretty intense text, you know. That's pretty serious text here. And uh, what we see here is an account of men wanting to sexually abuse some other men. That's what we see. He says, let me have these men, bring them out so we can have sex with them. That's what they said. Now, I'm going to cover these texts, but I'm going to cover these texts in two ways. First, I'm going to discuss what the proponents of the gay rights agenda are saying about these texts. Because you see, if this is to be something that would be clear for people to live out freely who are Christians then there has to be a way to justify dealing with some of these scriptures. And so there are justifications that have been made by proponents of the homosexual lifestyle. And I want to share those so that you can see where they come from, so that this doesn't come to you later and you go, well, why didn't you tell me this? And then we're going to express the response to that, and you can decide for yourself which one makes more sense. Okay? So the first thing, I've read what I've read. You've heard what you've heard in there. The proponents of the text, the way they use the text, they interpret know them was not sexual. Now, as you can see in there, it didn't say know them in the NIV. It said have sex with them. 
So it already translated it for you. But in, in other texts, it says know them. You and I have already talked about the word know. What did we say the word know stood for in the, in, in the beginning of Genesis? Adam knew Eve. What was it? What did know mean? Can't remember. Okay. Sexual. No referred to they were connected sexually. You know, they knew. And I talked about that at length. But here they have the word no in other translations. As you can see in NIV, it's translated already to say so we can have sex with them. So the proponents say that no them was not sexual contextually as the translation makes it out to be. In fact, even though most every translation says this, this is what the proponent theologian is saying here. Scholarship, however, shows historically the, that this is key uh, anticipation of a homosexual relationship. That in the context, it's pretty clear. It's an anticipation. Whether it's men saying, let me know you, and then in the response you have, a man who says, oh, don't do this wicked thing. Now, if they're saying, hey, can we become acquainted with these men? And, and you say, this is wicked. Do you think that has to do with just getting to know you? Getting to know you, getting to know all about you. That song? Is that what it's about? Like, okay, we just want to get to know you. Let me ask you 20 questions. No. He says, do not do this wicked thing. And what in context, it's so important to understand context, guys. I've been talking about this throughout this whole teaching. In context, then you have a response by Lot that not only says it's wicked, but he says, oh, let me give you my virgin daughters. They've never been with a man. You can do what you want with them. Okay, we can understand it's not, there's not a question here contextually. This is about sex. It's sick that Lot would offer his virgin daughters. This is not condoned by God. This is just the story. This is just the truth. This is how it happened. Why would Lot do that? Well, Lot lived in Sodom and Gomorrah, and he was a little bit messed up himself. I guess there was enough right in him that God was able to was okay to spare him. But one thing you might know is hospitality was huge in that culture, and hospitality would mean to 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 uh, accommodate the men of the city in whatever given way to show your respect. And so what Lot was trying to do, as sick as this is, in the way that they saw it in that time, was to accommodate these men in some way. Hospi hospitality would be what he would consider to be. Which brings me to my next point. Well, actually, let me just uh, you give you your blank. Scholarship shows historically the anticipation of a homosexual relationship. We also see that the word sodomy comes from this situation. Sodomy comes from Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodomy itself is defined as men who have anal or oral sex with other men. So all this has come out of this text. Uh I said that Lot caused their act wicked, if you want to get that blank there. Now let's talk about another suggestion that uh, uh, proponents of, this, uh, of the uh, gay agenda say. That the sin is inhospitality. This is the sin of inhospitality. And they, there's some interesting things that they have in the way that they, 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 they discuss this. I mean, intelligent people come up with these interpretations, and so we want to, you know... This, this, discuss it. Argument, this is an argument that comes from the gay metropolitan church. They say it's sexual, yes. It's sexual, yes. In the way that it's said. 
But it's about hospitality because these men were being inhospitable, the men of the city. And the way that they were being hospitable is that they intended to rape the men who came in, which would be the ultimate gesture of inhospitality, I would say. But to understand this, we must understand the culture and know that historically it is true that the ultimate gesture gesture of domination in war was that when a man when the men, when the men of a nation conquered the men of another nation they to show their ultimate domination would anally rape the men to show them that they had power and control disgusting i know just a fact i'm just telling you what's there so when we look at the context here and what is what is expressed here through the proponents use of the text we have to understand that contextually there was no war these men were visitors so that type of discussion is out of context but it's interesting to know that that is something that did happen you know Interesting trivia, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> uh, don't go tell everyone. Let me tell you something I learned in here. <laughs> All right. Sometimes the stuff that I have to I have to research, guys, grosses me out. Honestly, tell you, I just it's like, why do I have to study this stuff? Uh, but I do it for you. So, the underlying judgment on Sodom was sexual immorality, and it was not in hospitality. It was very clear. Ezekiel has a further discussion of um, this situation of the condemnation over Sodom and Gomorrah. And we do look at that particular text in Ezekiel, which we're not going to because it's just, it's just an aside part of this. It deals with the idea of further sin that, that isn't just sexual. But overarching the issue of this, of this city is it had gone way too far and one of the areas very clearly was sexual immorality. In hospitality, yes. Sexual immorality, indeed. So the next text is Leviticus 18.22 and Leviticus 20.13. So let me read that to you. Leviticus 18.22 and 20.13. 18.22 says, Do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That is detestable. Okay? That is 18.22. Then we have 20.13. 2013. If a man lies with a man as one lies with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They must be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. Oh, intense text, you know. I'm, I'm just reading what's there. I'm not saying that we put to death people that are in a homosexual lifestyle. But as you can understand, back in that time, there was a lot of little offenses that had extreme response uh, when you look at the different laws that were set forth. I thank God for the New Testament and the grace of uh, Christ's forgiveness and not ultimate death immediately upon our sin, <laughs> you know. Uh, but we look at this and let's discuss what is listed from the proponents in the way that they use the text. This is their way of creating a new ethic in the church. How can we change 
the idea, well, we're saying there's a new ethic. This is an old ethic. This has to do with something else. This is new. We're talking about new stuff, and that's not that. And the way they say it is the book is about ceremonial ways of Israel. That Leviticus is only about ceremonial ways of Israel. The texts are no longer, longer applicable today. Since the temple laws are no longer applicable, then the women and men issue isn't either. This is what is said. You could look at Acts 10. You could look at 1 Timothy. And you can see the understanding about how temple ways have been done away with. Because there's no temple anymore. Right? So if this is the case, they are indeed right. If it's about the temple. Problem is, it's not. This text has nothing to do with the temple. It's an oversimplification of the text. You can look very clearly in the list. These texts have to do with holiness. The texts contextually are not ceremonial temple texts, but holiness texts. And if you can look, you can even go in there and you can look. If you opened up your Bible to it, you can see just a list. It's, uh, it's, li it's listed as chapter 18, unlawful sexual relationships, uh, relations, and it goes down. And it gives all kinds of different unlawful sexual relations that are there. And one of those is this one. Do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That is detestable. This is not dealing with the temple at all. Now, if, the pro if, if we're going to carry out the proponent's view also, which is show a further hole here, if we're going to carry out the proponent's view also, then that means that rape, incest, bestiality are also not binding as immoral in God's eyes. Because this list also has that. So, so you know, like I'm saying, I just want to carry it out and say if we were to actually, if this was actually true, if what they said was true, then we've got to follow the rest of the things there too. And this leads a big problem. They leave us to believe that some are all right at certain times is what they lead us to believe. Now, as long as it's not for a religious purpose, you can have sex with an animal. As long as it's not for a religious purpose, that's bestiality. As long as you, it's not for a religious purpose, you can rape somebody. As long as it's not for a religious or temple purpose, then you can live in this particular way. That's what that would mean if you were to take that text the way that they're using it. Which obviously we see there are holes in that. And no theologian seriously believes this. No theologian seriously believes this interpretation. There's another proponent argument on this text that it is only about homosexual idolatry that's being addressed. It's not actually homosexuality as we know it today. It's sacred prostitution. Now understand what some of the stuff that's being said. It's not made up stuff. There is cultural things to, to, to back up some of the ideas they're saying. But again, we're talking about context. And contextually, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. You know what I mean? So... Does this make sense contextually? We know that in the New Testament there were problems with temple prostitution. Even in the New Testament, there were men that went to the temple Delphi and to the temple Venus. And they had sex as a form of worship with women and with young boys. Unfortunately. This is the way it was. So these things were terrible. And they are indeed condemned by God, those kinds of things. In both the Old Testament and New Testament, those things are condemned by God. But is Leviticus talking about this? 
And again, I reiterate, it is so important to understand that context matters. Context matters big time. <laughs> I can justify things all day long, but if I, got, if I look at the context, I have, to be proof, I have to prove within the context what I'm saying is true. Deuteronomy 23, 7 and 8, 17 and 18, it does address the idea of cultic prostitution. That is addressed. So this is an issue that was going on at the time. But contextually, in Leviticus, you see no specific addressing of prostitution at all. Not in this particular text. It's been addressed already. It's been addressed in Deuteronomy. But Leviticus, this is not what's being addressed. Instead, you see a broad, all-inclusive command that includes that rape, Incest, bestiality, and homosexuality are universally condemned. Again, the lifestyle, the acts acted out without any consideration of them being in any way wrong, they're universally condemned. So if you were to take that view, you have to argue from silence. One, completely just, it's not said, but we're just going to assume. And then you also have to apply other distortions, you know, the proponents' view of what they're saying related to the homosexual idolatry. Then you have to deal with the question of, when is it okay? If it's not okay here, is it okay here? <laughs> That's a problem. The most controversial text about homosexuality let me say that again. The most controversial text about ethics and homosexuality is in the New Testament. Why is it controversial? Just for that reason. It's in the New Testament. Because if we're going to apply ethics across the board, there are certain things we can say where we, where we, could, we can have excuse where we say, Old Testament says this, but New Testament doesn't say anything about that, so it's different. That's not the case because this carries into the New Testament as well. And so it becomes a real issue. New Testament and Old Testament bring condemnation of deviant sexual practices. In particular, as we're talking about now, homosexual practices in the area of the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ. It's not like some things that pass away but, are carried, but aren't carried on. This one is carried on in the New Covenant. We see that when we read Romans. But again, let me remember, remind you that this is not the only thing that is condemned. There are many things condemned by God. Okay? Many things. Romans 1, 26 through 27 is the text, but I'm going to start us all the way back in 16 because I want us to really get the context of this. Paul is saying... I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from the first to the last, just as it's written, the righteousness will live, the righteous will live by faith. And uh, that was a hopeful thing, wasn't it, that he's saying. And then he goes on to something else. The wrath of God is now being poured out from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, and the divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. And so basically a judgment has been made, right? A judgment has been made on the people. For although they knew God, this is what they've done, this is what happened. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, this is past tense. I mean, this is looking at past, right? 
They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of immortal gods for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. It's talking about idolatry, right? It's talking about worshiping the created instead of the creator. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires. The judgment on them was God yielded. He gave, himself, he gave them over to what they wanted. He said, okay, you're going to persist in your own way. Gave them over to sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity. Remember, that's one indictment, sexual impurity. What? That's not, that didn't say homosexuality, it says sexual impurity. For the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Now the word lust comes in. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. Now we're getting into the homosexual stuff. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed in lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have been filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife. They being all the people, not, not people who are homosexual, but everybody who's fallen, fallen away from God. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips. They're slanderers. This is a big long list. God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they knew God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Now that's, a, that's, a, that's an intense list. And that's an intense indictment. And so let's take it apart here. But again, let's, let's go from the, from the view of the proponents' use of the text. The proponents towards uh, the homosexual lifestyle being fine and okay and scripturally being uh, um, advocated. Uh, so the heterosexuals were doing homosexual acts against their orientation. That's what the interpretation is here. So when they say the word unnatural, what they're saying is the heterosexual were doing homosexual acts against their orientation. In other words, heterosexuals were being homosexual, but they weren't truly homosexual. Okay? They were not naturally homosexual. Uh, it refers to uh, some things related to Roman uh, pagan rituals in the temple practices, Roman prostitution and the effeminate, which I'll talk about a little bit later, what's that mean and all that kind of stuff. So let's jump back to the text. We need to know two things. First of all, what is Paul's overall purpose of this text? That's the first thing we need to know. And the second thing is, what does Paul mean by natural? What does Paul mean by natural in this text, which would give us the context? This text is going to rest on those two concerns. Two undeniable thrusts that are in this text. One, righteousness of God. Right? That's the first thing I talked about. The righteous nature of who God is. That God has made himself known. That he's made himself clear. That God has desired for us to choose him and to choose his ways. That's the beginning part of the text, right? You remember me reading that? Okay, the second part is his wrath. Very clear, you read the wrath part. <laughs> remember that wrath part. 
So the wrath is what's God going to do? His wrath is being revealed upon rampant unrighteousness. Recognize his wrath is not revealed upon people who are not guilty. His wrath is revealed upon people who choose to rampantly continue in an unrighteous life. Have opportunity, but don't. This is uh, one thing we learned from a commentary by Hayes, if you want to know where that comes from. You want to know what the, who, who wrote the, uh, uh, who was the proponent? His, name was, his last name is Boswell. So you want to know that, just so you know that that does have a, a basis. That, I didn't just say that, but there's actually, uh, you know, a writing related to it. Boswell is a proponent. <laughs> okay, so much of the text here is in the past tense. I threw that in there. God revealed himself. There's a diagnosis over the human condition since the fall. The final part of the text is rooted in a rejection of God's rule, which is the fall after the Genesis 3 going our own way. And this rejection leads to a hatred towards God in such a way that we continue to go our own way and, and begin to almost create our own faith or our own religion out of them because we approve of what we do and we celebrate it, even though it's not what God would have us do. Okay? It's, when I read this text, it always lets me see you know, the condition that our world can be in even at this given state right now. The phrase, turn them over, shows that God yields to their willfulness. It says God turned them over to a reprobate mind, doing what was unnatural, exchanging things that were right for things that were wrong. He yields. God says, hey, I'm not going to force you. I'm not going to force you. If this is the way you want to go, it breaks my heart, but I will yield. I will yield to your destruction if that's what you choose. And what does this yielding do? It leads them down a long list of depravities. And within the depravities, Paul mentions homosexuality as a vivid description of the sexual confusion that's resulted. And a lot of things are listed in the sexual confusion that's there. He mentioned other unhealthy sexual practices, not just homosexuality. And he made this, these practices in using the word natural and unnatural to create a vivid image of where we go without God. He also wanted to create a vivid image of the confusion and the blindness that's resulted from choosing our own ways. Paul also mentions women in the text, which is what really debunks the argument of, this, this, of the proponent use because when you mention women and you're dealing with temple prostitution in the, in, in the, in the homosexual uh, way it was used in Rome, and you throw in women exchanging unnatural affections for each other, then contextually you've thrown that argument out. And so Paul uses the word women in the text, which shows he's not speaking of older men cavorting with younger men in the Roman pedophilic way that you see in those temple rituals that he's talking about. Paul mentions many things in his list, one of which, this is a, a quote by Marva Dawn, Paul mentions many things in his list, one of which is homosexuality is acting in a way not according to God's original intent as unnatural. Again, what's this about? It's about God's original intent. What is God's original intent? We've got to go back to Genesis, guys. Now you see why I started in Genesis? Because every single bit of the sexual discussion that we have goes right back to Genesis because that was God's original intent. And so we go, what, what lines up with God's original intent? Genesis 1 through 3, one of God's original intent was what? To bear fruit and multiply. 
wasn't it? To bear fruit and multiply. And so when we look at the word unnatural, would not Paul be thinking about this? Since when he sees God's original intent, natural intent was to bear fruit and multiply, and men exchanging uh, sex with men does not create life. There is no multiplication. There is no fruit born. There is no procreation. And that's really what that's talking about when it's talking about natural, if you're going to look contextually, based on where Paul stands and based on where the Bible stands. The same thing with women. Unnatural. Women and women cannot create life. So, it's natural for Paul that what he's instituted when he says creator in his creation. I know I just butchered that statement. <laughs> uh, but your blank is creator and creation. Natural for Paul is that which is instituted by the creator in his creation. When Paul looks at natural, he's looking at that. What did the creator do in his creation? That's a quote by Stanley Grenz. It's important that we see Jesus is in the picture too with the way he sees this stuff. And this is from a different angle than specifically talking about homosexuality. But what it gives us is what is natural. Jesus in the Gospels in Matthew 19, 12, he refers to alternatives to the heterosexual marriage. They're asking him, what, do we, you know, what other alternatives do we have? Basically, the only alternatives that he mentions is some of you are eunuchs. Some of you have been forced that way. And I told you about how slaves were forced and so that they didn't have their way with the, with the women concubines of the kings, the slaves that worked with them, they were castrated, they, you know, they, they were turned into eunuchs so that they uh, didn't have any temptation, which, which was terrible. And then there was also the chosen eunuch, which he refers to as well, Jesus does. Some of you have chosen this way for your own purposes, to pursue a greater understanding of God. And so, uh, or you've chosen to be single, <laughs> you know, whatever. And this is celibacy. The only thing he mentions as an alternative to marriage is celibacy. So I think we can learn something from that. I recognize that there is no way that I'm going to be able to answer all of you, everybody's questions today. Um, uh, I'm going to try and get through this, and uh, we'll talk about you know what we might could do next week to close everything out. First uh, Corinthians six, nine, and ten uh, is uh, is, an, uh, is the next scripture. First Corinthians six, nine, and ten. We'll start in verse eight. No, I'm going to do nine. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, there's that word again, sexually immoral, which covers a lot of things, <laughs> nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Another one of those lists that Paul has <laughs> that he wants to cover all the bases. Lots of things listed there. Right now what we're talking about is homosexuality. So let's, let's see this. Interesting. We have two types of listings here when it comes to that, didn't we? We have the word male prostitutes. We also have a word that in some texts is called effeminate. I told you how I'm going to express that in a minute. Then... Okay, so what is this? What is male prostitute? What is effeminate? The same things. And what effeminate is, 
It's a technical term for the passive receiver in a homosexual relationship, an effeminate. Okay? In the temple, the young boys, the young men up to 20 years old, 16 to 20, 14 to 20 actually, but uh, these young men were effeminate. They were the receivers. They were in the temple. The men went to have their way with them. Okay? The one who is in the temple is that person. Then we also have another thing listed. Homosexual offenders. Two things listed. Okay? Two different things in the list. You heard me say that, right? Male prostitutes, and then I said homosexual offenders in the list. Six, nine, and ten. Two separate things. The proponent's use of the text is that this deals with temple practices. It deals with older men and younger men, homosexual prostitution. I already talked to you about it. Yes, indeed, it does deal with that. Don't argue with it. I don't argue with it. But it further deals with other things, too. The conclusion, uh, this is a, a response in the commentary of Gordon Fee. The conclusion here cannot be sustained by the text. The conclusion that is made by the proponent here. To say that Paul is not talking about male and female homosexuality, which is to say other things than just the temple issue, and only the effeminate, which is the temple issue, cannot be sustained by the text because Paul uses many sins in his list. Notice he uses a lot of things in his list and they're all different. Paul is not known as a writer to be redundant. So what this would say is that Paul decided to repeat himself. Male prostitutes and homosexual offenders both equal the same thing. Paul's just redundant. Paul is never redundant in his list of all of his writings. If you're a writer, you know, you can just study how a writer is and you know that they have a certain pattern in a way. Paul's way was not to be redundant. So he's referring to both male prostitution and male and female homosexual um, offenders. Uh, do you have in your uh, blank uh, this is talking about temple prostitution, heterosexual and homosexual, and homosexual relationships? Uh, if you break down this, what, what we see in this text is that it's talking about temple prostitution, heterosexual and homosexual relationships, and homosexual relationships. What I'm saying is it breaks the whole thing down into all these different lists. Yeah. We're breaking it down so you get clarity. You don't have it, so if you want to write it, you can. <laughs> I have it all underlined. I just thought it was your underline. In this text, Paul is talking about what they once were. I think this is where we're going to get into some exciting stuff. Here, Paul is talking about what they once were. They're not this anymore. So there is hope, and there is freedom for a person who struggles with these things and lives in these kind of lifestyles. They once were this. He doesn't address the path. He doesn't address the difficulty of it. And, and I understand it's an extremely difficult issue to deal with and to recover from. Someone who doesn't understand, who has never had the thoughts, who has never struggled with the type of nature or nurture that they, or the nurture that, that, that has led them to these places in their minds and in their hearts, could never understand. But I don't want you to see that Paul's taking light of that. He just isn't talking about it right now. He says, you recovered, but I promise you, if you want to know how they recovered, it was a tough road. It was a hard road. But they did recover. And that's cool. Uh, he does say this. He celebrates what they are now. That's your blank. 
He celebrates what they are now. This is what you were, but now you're this. Paul is speaking in an extremely hope-filled way because this is an extremely hope-filled text. Paul doesn't offer justification with no change. Studies and psychologists and all these different people, they're really good at justification in their research and scientists. Let me justify why it happens like it does. Let me justify why people are like this. But justifying why a person is like this doesn't bring them the freedom that they need to get out of the cycle, to get out of the struggle. But see, God does offer the hope. He offers the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. Paul's text is different. He goes further. And that's exactly what we're supposed to offer. That's what we're supposed to offer. The transforming power of the Holy Spirit through the community and the healthy bonding. I'm telling you, one of the greatest things that a person who struggles with homosexuality needs is a bonded partner that is same sex that can love them without the awkward feelings that come between the mind of a person who struggles in homosexuality. They just need someone who can show them how can you have a healthy relationship with a person of the same sex that doesn't lead to sex? That's what they need. Because in their mind, there's a distortion that says this is the way it's supposed to be. This is the way I can feel close. Is to go this, to go further and to be this way. Okay. Next text, 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 10. We have another list. There's many things listed. It responds to moral codes. It goes into the idea of the Mosaic Law, okay? And how we understand Mosaic Law, the Ten Commandments, various things of that nature, the things that were given when Moses was on Mount Sinai. There's a word that's used. I'm doing this fast because I, I don't want to take too long on it. There's a word that's used in here. And it could really, really set somebody off. In fact, it's probably been read wrongly by people who try to talk about this text. It's the word pervert. The word pervert is used. Pervert translates, when it's used in the NIV, pervert is used, uh, in the NIV, the word pervert is used, but if you were to translate what that really meant, it actually translates homosexual. Why exactly does it come that way? Let me explain to you this. Contextually, we see that. But what does pervert really mean? Because that word pervert just sounds mean. Ugly. It's been used ugly in an ugly way. What does it really mean, the word perversion? It just simply means this. Something corrupted in light of God's natural intention. There are a lot of perverted things. A lot of things that we can pervert. Contextually, they were talking about this particular perversion. Something corrupted in light of God's natural intention. Adultery is perverted. Sexual immorality is perverted. They also fit this type of understanding too. So it's not derogatory. That's not what it's trying to say. It's just, again, a word issue where we really need to know what does it mean. It's just distortion from original intent. That's what that means. We're all sexually broken. We all need healing. I want to read this quote by Sean Galian. It's just a beautiful quote. We must view those with homosexual tendencies not as peoples who must wear a scarlet H, 
but as people who have experienced the brokenness of the fall in their sexual orientation. Whether that occurred through nature or through nurture makes little difference at this point. Brokenness is still brokenness, however it occurred. The issue now is the healing power of the grace of God to deliver, not to stigmatize anyone due to their particular brand of sin. And he goes on further and he says this, Sin is sin, and sin is deadly for all sinners. The power of the gospel is to deliver people from the penalty and dominion of sin, however it expresses itself. I think that this really brings clarity to what we're talking about here. So if we sum this up, Paul gives an unambiguous uniform indictment. You've got to change the word understanding to indictment. I said understanding, you need to change it to indictment. Paul gives an unambiguous uniform indictment of homosexual behavior as one form of sexual sin. This is, this is the verdict as we look at it all. Paul's view agrees with the Old Testament view as a distortion of our sexual power. A distortion of God's original intent contrary to God's will. Homosexuality is seen as a form of sinfulness and radical rebellion from God. We realize that in Romans because we talk about radical things that people resorted to in going their own way. And God gave them up to reprobate mind to do all of these things. Unnatural. Many things unnatural, but that's one of them. Rebellion from God, it leads to that. Sinfulness creates estrangement. When you're in sin and you're living in it, you're creating a, a separation from God and it leads then to blindness. I can't see God. And it leads to confusion. I see things differently than everyone else. I don't understand why they don't understand what I understand. If that makes sense to you. Because our perspective is completely skewed. Not one scripture affirms homosexuality. It's important to note that. Not one scripture affirms it. And if it did, I would mention it to you. It would be here. And then we'd not have any questions about this. There's, there's a right way to do things and a wrong way. Sex is good and it's blessed in marriage. But it's not outside of marriage. We understand that, right? The same as homosexual sex. It's not considered to be blessed either. It's not in God's original design and it's a distortion. Just like sex outside of marriage is a distortion too. All of us, Jew and Gentile, stand under judgment from radical rebellion from God. All of us do. And this gets into a deeper issue. A scripture that talks about how our body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for our body. That we should flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. So how does this tie into issues of people who struggle with homosexuality? Sexual sin has deep consequences in our life. And it's difficult to break. It changes the patterns of our life and literally turns us away from God because it distorts, making our view of life and God skewed. It literally attacks our identity, and that's where it lies the most, guys. When your identity is attacked, that's when you're really dealing with a sin that takes over your whole self, when your identity is attacked, and it creates confusion. 
I touched on this briefly, but it's worth noting the healing process for sexual sin is complex and it's time consuming. But it is possible. It's complex and it's time consuming, but it is possible. And for, 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 for all of us here, we should remember that the reason why we're doing anything that we're doing in, this, in talking about this today, or we have hearts for those who struggle in this area, or we, we ourselves perhaps are struggling in this area, is that Christ's love compels us. Christ's love compels us to do what we need to do, to know Him more, to free people who could be in bondage to not seeing Him, And that's why we do what we do. We should long to see the sexually broken restored because our heart breaks for them.